Matthew 9, we will be looking at verses 1 through 8 this morning as we continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew that we're calling Long Expected, Unexpected King, looking at this Jesus, this Savior, who may be familiar to many of us who have grown up reading the Bible, who have grown up in the church. He was not at all familiar to the people that he met when he walked the earth. He was altogether unexpected in the type of Savior that he was. And, and I hope as we've opened this book and studied it together that you've seen him through fresh eyes. I think we're going to have a chance to do that again this morning. So Matthew 9, 1 through 8, if you didn't get a listening guide on your way in, you can slip your hand up. Alex will make sure that you get one from the back, help you follow along. And as you are getting your bearings in Matthew 9, I want you to imagine something for a moment. I want you to play out a scenario in your mind. I want you to imagine that you encounter the teaching of a captivating new religious leader for the first time. That you encounter somebody who's altogether different than anyone you've ever heard before. See, this person, he teaches in a way that's not like the other teachers that you've listened to. Not, all, not like the other preachers you've heard growing up. You come away from listening to this guy feeling like you know God better for having been around him, for having listened to what he says. He shows a compassion for people that is unlike most of the religious people you've met in your life. Most preachers and teachers you've encountered tend to try to fluff up their own importance, but this guy seems to go out of his way to reach out to the unimportant, to the outcast, to the uninvolved. Plainly put, you encounter this individual and you want to follow this guy. This guy is unlike anybody you've encountered before, but at the same time, he also says some pretty bold things. Things like, me and God are one. If you've seen me, you've seen God. Things like, if you remain connected to me, you can do amazing things. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Or even nobody approaches God except through me. Like, what kind of person says things like that? What do you do with bold claims like that? On the one hand, you see this individual and they're captivating and they're charismatic and you want to be around them. And on the other hand, they say some things that no human being in their right mind would ever say, right? What do we do with that? Well, I would hope that you'd pause and ask yourself, how do I know those things are true? Why should I believe this individual who not only says that he's a great religious teacher, but he says he's God himself? Why should I believe this? I mean, the guy's a charismatic leader, charismatic teacher, but that's not enough in and of itself, is it, right? And that can lead you down a bad path. Hitler was charismatic. Charles Manson was charismatic. We need something a little better than that before we give everything we have to this individual that we're going to follow around. How do you know that this person is exactly who he says he is? How do you know that he can do the things that he says he can do? Well, I want to put to you this morning that Jesus' followers, his disciples, were in that exact situation in the early days of his ministry. Here's this Galilean carpenter who comes and says, come, follow me. 
who captivates them with his words, with the Sermon on the Mount that we just spent a few months going through, with the way he's reached out to the outcasts and the, down, the downtrodden. He's healed the sick. He's cast out demons. These men are captivated by him. They want to follow him. But he says some things at the same time that are wholly unlike their expectations of what a Jewish religious teacher should say. He's not like the scribes. He's not like the Pharisees. So how are they supposed to believe that he is who he says he is? That he's actually God. What we're going to see this morning is that this dilemma is one of the primary reasons that Jesus performed miracles. So that people could see physical, tangible things. A display of power that validates Jesus' ability to do the intangible, spiritual things that he said he was going to do. That he said he could do. To, be, to show that he was who he said he was. His healings are amazing things, to be sure. We've looked at that over the last couple of weeks, right? Healing various diseases, casting out demons. These are things that we're not expecting to walk down the street and see this afternoon. But as amazing as they are in and of themselves, they should ultimately serve to convince us that some even more amazing things are true. And they should cause us to put our trust in the one who does and says them. So let's look together. Matthew 9, we're going to read verses 1 through 8, and we'll talk more about how Jesus' healings are for our assurance of his salvific power. Matthew 9, 1. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Let's pray as we study this passage further. Our Father, our great God, who gives this kind of authority to your Son, Jesus Christ, As we come to your word this morning, we ask that what we know not, you would teach us. What we have not, you would give us. What we are not, you would make us. We are totally dependent on you for the food, for the life, for the change that we need in our souls this morning. We pray that you would do it for us in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 9 with Jesus getting into a boat yet again. This has become a theme over the past couple weeks, right? So he got in a boat and he left the, the town of Capernaum. He went over to the other side. Last week, Pastor Todd took us through the story of him healing these uh, two demon-possessed men who were crazy people living out in tombs. No one could come near them. And Jesus, with just a single word, drives this whole legion of demons out In dramatic fashion, they enter a herd of pigs who drown themselves at the shock of it. And the people of the town come out. They see these two demon-possessed men in their right mind. And, of course, they say, wow, this is amazing, Jesus. No, no, no. They say, 
get out of here. We don't want anything to do with this. How about just pick up your, your boat and your gang and be on your way? And so Jesus in verse nine or in verse one of chapter nine is getting back into the boat and crossing over the sea again, and he comes to his own city. So what, where are we talking about when we say he's coming to his city? Well, it's actually not what we might think at first. This isn't Bethlehem, the, the city where he was born. It's not even Nazareth, his hometown. He's going back to Capernaum. Capernaum is referred to as his city because at this stage of his ministry, it, this is basically a central hub for his ministry. Capernaum actually becomes something of an adopted hometown for Jesus. You know, as he's told some would-be followers a couple weeks ago, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He doesn't have a home per se, uh, but Capernaum has become a place where he could set up a base of operations. It's the hometown of many of his disciples, and so this is an area from which Jesus' ministry starts to quickly spread. So, he comes to Capernaum and sets up camp back in his city. And we're told in verse 2 that a paralytic is brought to him lying on a bed. Now, much like last week, this is another instance where Mark and Luke give more detail in their accounts than Matthew does in his. Matthew is driving straight to a point, and we're going to hit that point hard this morning. But we get more detail from Mark and Luke, and what they let us know is Jesus comes back to Capernaum, and he's done, doing essentially what he was doing when he left. He sets up, and he's teaching, and he's healing people. And as you can imagine, a crowd starts to gather around him. And so in verse 2, as these, two men, as these men bring a paralytic to him lying on a bed, uh, Matthew leaves out the detail of how they brought him there. Mark and Luke let us know a rather remarkable story that the crowd is so thick around Jesus, he's in a house, the crowd's so thick around that these guys can't get anywhere close to him. And in great uh, desire to bring their friend to Jesus, these guys do not give up easily. And so they actually climb up on the roof, they take tiles out of the roof, and they lower the guy down on his mat through the roof right in front of Jesus. Like these guys are not taking no for an answer. They want their friend to see Jesus. They want him to experience the healing that they're seeing from all of these other people around them. So Matthew doesn't give us that detail, uh, not because it's unimportant, but because Matthew is making a specific point. He is cutting right to the chase, and he wants us to understand something very clearly from this message. So while Mark and Luke focus a lot on the faith of the individuals who are coming to Jesus, Matthew goes straight to what Jesus says to this man. So Jesus sees the man drop down in front of him. He sees the paralytic lying on the bed, and he says something to him. Now, we've seen this script play out a few times now, right? We saw some healings a few weeks ago. We've seen the demon-possessed man. Like, we know Jesus can say a word, and things happen. Things that should be physically impossible happen. So we might expect the bed to drop down, Jesus to see and we're told he marvels at the faith of the men who brought this man, we would expect him to say, get up and walk. But it doesn't go like we expect in this instance. And Jesus has a knack for doing that, right? What does Jesus say to him? The man drops down. Jesus takes note of their faith. And he says to the paralytic, take heart, my son. Now this take heart, my son, this is a very warm familial fatherly tone. Jesus has compassion on this man. And so what he's about to say flows from the compassion that he has on him. Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Well, that's not what we expected, is it? And the fact that it's not what we expected tells us a couple things. 
It tells us something about us, and it tells us something about Jesus. First off, what does it reveal about us? Well, it reveals about us that we see our physical reality as more important than our spiritual reality. Now, we don't know what's going on in the paralyzed man's head or in the heads of his friends. We're not given that in the text. But I've got to imagine that if I'm one of these guys and I bring my friend to Jesus because I've heard stories that he's been healing every affliction and I climb up on the roof and I take out the tiles and I lower him down and I wait expectantly to see what's going to happen and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, I got to think my heart would have sunk a little bit because I didn't have to lower him through the roof because he's a sinner. I had to lower him through the roof because he's paralyzed. Like, that's kind of why we brought him here. Jesus is actually meeting the man's deepest and greatest need when he says, your sins are forgiven. What we find about ourselves is that we tend to, to value what's right in front of our face more than we do spiritual realities. Jesus' message has been and will continue to be that our spiritual health is more important than our physical wholeness. Our spiritual health is more important than our physical wholeness. We saw that come up in Matthew chapter 5, right? When Jesus, talking about temptations to lust, said, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go to hell. Your spiritual health is more important than your physical wholeness. This is the most important thing about you is what is the condition of your soul. And so in that respect, Jesus is meeting this man's deepest and most precious need when he says to him, your sins are forgiven. We don't see it that way, but that's the reality. If this guy, if this paralytic had to choose between either being able to walk again or having all of his sin forgiven, he should choose having his sin forgiven. And it's not even close. And that's not to belittle the suffering that he endured as someone who was paralyzed, right? But this is how much more important it is that his soul has peace with God, that his sins are forgiven. So our assumption that Jesus' response somehow shortchanges this guy reveals that we haven't fully grasped it yet. We haven't fully grasped the significance of our sin. We haven't fully grasped the danger that it puts us in and how deep our need of forgiveness is. So that's what Jesus' response shines a flashlight and tells us about us. But what does it tell us about Jesus? Well, what it tells us about Jesus is that he claimed divinity. It tells us that he claimed to be God, point blank. Now, that might not be immediately obvious to us today in our culture, right? He says, your sins are forgiven. That doesn't necessarily connect to us as a claim of divinity. After all, all across the world there are priests of Christianity and various religions who will pronounce forgiveness for people from their sins. And so they, they're not claiming to be God when they do that, right? So why is this Jesus claiming to be God? Well, in the culture of Jesus' day, in first century Judaism, it was 
without question known that the forgiveness of sins was the prerogative of God alone. Read through the Old Testament. We've gone through Daniel in here on Sunday mornings, and and as you've read elsewhere in in the Old Testament, think about how was forgiveness procured in the Old Testament. How did people approach God for forgiveness under the Old Covenant? There were sacrifices that were required. There were some that were required of individuals and families. There were some that were required of the whole nation. And for anyone to pronounce forgiveness of sins apart from the system of sacrifice that God had specifically required was blasphemous. It was intruding on ground that belonged to God and God alone. And so when Jesus says here, your sins are forgiven, he is taking a right upon himself that was God and God's alone. And the people around would have instantly understood that. Notice here, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. He doesn't say, I forgive you, as if some personal offense had been done to him and and he was offering forgiveness in return. That we all understand, right? We all offer forgiveness in that way when we've been wronged. But Jesus gives a blanket statement. We, We don't know that Jesus has ever met this man in his life. And he says, your sins are forgiven based on the faith of this man and his friends who have brought him to him. Jesus offers full and free forgiveness. He pronounced something that only God had the right to pronounce. And Jesus continues to pronounce this to people around the world 2,000 years later, right? That is the central message of the gospel, is that we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ so that we would receive forgiveness of sins. We continue to offer, in the name of this man Jesus, something that only God can deliver. Namely, forgiveness of sins, of everything you've ever done, every wrong you've ever committed, every right that you ever failed to do. Christianity says, find forgiveness by trusting in Christ. Jesus is the only figure in all the world's religions who has claimed the right to offer absolute forgiveness for all of a person's sins. You ever think about that? There is no concept of divine universal forgiveness in Islam. It does not exist. You look at some of the Eastern religions, Buddhism, Hinduism, there is not the same concept of sin that there is in the Christian faith. I mean, they believe in sin, but sin is something that you you wrestle with, you rid yourself of through cycles of, of reincarnation, through becoming more at one with the world around you. There is nothing like this in any other faith. In any other religion, Jesus is claiming something unique and something incredible when he says here, your sins are forgiven. Who can claim such a thing as a mere man? And so that's the first truth that we see in this text this morning. Jesus claims divinity. You encounter somebody say, well, Jesus was a great moral teacher, but he didn't claim to be God. No. Who else says this? We're going to see more examples throughout the gospel, but even if you just add this one right here, Jesus is claiming to do something that only God can do. And in verse 3, we see the reaction of the people around him. Because when Jesus claims divinity, typically we respond skeptically, right? That's the attitude of the scribes, verse 3. Behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. Right? So number one, they get it. 
they understand exactly what he's saying. They say, he's blaspheming. Right? He is taking on to himself something that only belongs to God. We don't use this term blaspheming a whole lot today. It's, it's kind of gone out of vogue in our culture. But the term blaspheme uh, actually comes from the Greek term blasphemeo, blasphemeo, which it's kind of easy to say where we got the term blaspheme from. Uh, I like it. When it made it much easier in Greek class, by the way, when the word sounded exactly like the English world, word. It helped me to get that C plus that I had in Greek uh, very, very well. So the term in Greek means to speak lightly or profanely of sacred things. To speak lightly or profanely of sacred things. I think we tend to think of blasphemy in the latter category, of saying something profane or evil or untrue about God. But it also involves this idea of speaking lightly about something that should not be spoken lightly of. Speaking lightly about that which has absolute gravity. And that's the kind of blasphemy that the scribes are accusing Jesus of in their hearts, right? He's saying to this guy, uh, your sins are forgiven. Who does he think he is? How can he just say that? Only God can say that. And so in their mind, Jesus is putting himself on equal terms with God because he is. They don't believe he's God, and so they're angry. They understand what Jesus is saying, who he's claiming to be. They don't believe that he is God, and so they believe this is an affront to God. So they respond with anger, and countless people today still respond in the same way, right? You see this reaction most clearly from, uh, from Muslims. You go over to the Middle East and to areas of India, Pakistan, where there is a lot of religious violence, and many Muslims who commit acts of violence against Christians are angry because of this exact thing. They believe that Christians and their Christ are taking something that belongs only to their God. And so they believe they defend their God's honor by doing these violent acts to snuff out Christianity. They see Jesus claiming to be God. They believe that's an affront and an insult to their God, and so they're angry. Same thing is happening with, with the scribes here, right? They have a jealousy burning in their heart for what they believe God would have them to desire. So a lot of times we see anger against Jesus and his claims of divinity. I would say that more often in our culture in particular, a lot of people respond with skepticism, but theirs doesn't lead to anger. It leads to apathy, right? Who really cares? After all, they may not believe there's a God out there at all. So if you want to say you're God, well, good luck. Have fun with that, but I don't care, right? Doesn't affect me. They may not believe that really there is, who cares about sin? Forgive, if there's no God, then forgiveness is irrelevant. You just do you, do the best you can, be a nice person, and it'll all sort out. Maybe people believe in a God, but, but really they believe that you know, God's a whole lot like me, and so he doesn't really have any problem with me. Sin's not really a big deal. Jesus is a good teacher. I mean, maybe some of these religious people go a little overboard with it, but Jesus is all right. I'm fine. I don't care. That's the more frequent response in our culture is this apathy. But whatever direction skepticism takes someone in, whether anger, whether apathy, the end result is the same. The end result is a person who says Jesus can't actually do what he claimed he can do. He claimed to be able to forgive sins. I don't think he can do that. 
And whether that gets me riled up or just shrug my shoulders, the end result is somebody walks away rejecting the reality of who Christ is. And Jesus knows the hearts of these scribes. And he knows exactly what's going through their heads. And he calls them out on it. Verse 4, But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? Jesus knows the hearts of the scribes, and he knows the hearts of you and me. He knows what's going through our heads. He knows about our doubts. He knows about our skepticisms. And he invites us to bring them out into the open. He doesn't dismiss them. He confronts them. That's what he does with the scribes here. He knows their thoughts. They're not saying this, right? They're thinking this to themselves. And Jesus calls it out into the open. Why do you think evil in your hearts? Let's talk about this. He's getting ready to confront their skepticism head on. And this is important for us to hear today. Because I think we have this notion, especially in our broader culture, we have this notion that faith should include no doubt whatsoever. So if you have any kind of doubts or skepticism and you want to be accepted in religious circles, you just hide that away, right? You just don't talk about it. It's striking then to hear Jesus' words, why do you think evil in your hearts? What evil are we hiding away in our hearts that we're afraid to bring out into the open? What kind of skepticisms? What kind of doubts? If you've turned on, I won't say turn on the news because they wouldn't really talk about it, but if you've been online and read in Christian circles over the past few weeks, you're probably aware there's been a string of prominent faces in evangelicalism who have left the faith in recent weeks and recent months. Joshua Harris has kind of been the prominent one that got a lot of people talking over the past few months. So we've seen in these individuals the danger of allowing doubt and skepticism to just be hidden away, not brought out into the open, and then eventually it will get out. It will come to the point where it boils over and people fail or leave spectacularly from the faith. Jesus is aware of our doubts. You're not hiding them from him, but he invites us, bring them in the open. Let's talk about it. That's one of the chief um, tragedies of these leaders who have left the faith is being unwilling to just bring stuff out and then act like you're unique in, well, I've got these doubts and nobody else is really thinking through this stuff, but I'm going to be brave and go this route and toss the whole thing. Uh, This past week, uh, John Cooper, who is the lead singer of the band Skillet, uh, had a post on social media that ended up going pretty viral where he was just saying, like, what are we doing? We're valuing emotion over God's word and it's, it's killing us and kind of calling the church back to the foundation of the scriptures after these high-profile defections that we've seen in recent months. As part of his statement, he said this, and it caused me to think this week as I was preparing this message. He said, I just read today in a renowned worship leader's statement, how could a God of love send people to hell? No one talks about it. As if he's the first person to ask this. Brother, you are not that unique. The church has wrestled with this for 1,500 years, literally. Everybody talks about it. Children talk about it in Sunday school. There's like a billion books written on the topic. Just because you get the answer you don't want doesn't mean that we are unwilling to wrestle with it. When we keep doubts inside and skepticism inside, it gets magnified, right? I am not a good counselor to myself. And so when I hold it in, I tend to think that this big question is something that 
I am unique in wrestling with, and nobody's got answers for this, and I end up taking counsel with myself and going off on a bad route. Bring it out into the open, right? Let's talk about it. Let's wrestle with it. Let's strengthen our faith through doing that with one another. Look, if you're here and you're skeptical this morning, whether openly or secretly, we're glad you're here. Bring your questions. Bring your doubts. Talk about them in community group this week. What is it that makes me think every now and then, is this really true? What is it that trips up your faith? Don't don't think that to be a Christian, you have to pretend that's not there until finally you burn out and go off on your own. Talk about it. Talk about it together. Let other people speak into your life. The Jesus that we follow is big enough to handle your doubts. He handles them for these scribes. We're about to see that momentarily. He can handle yours. We all experience skepticism at the claims of Jesus. We talked about it at the beginning. These are big things that he's claiming. He's okay with us being cautious and skeptical and having doubt. That's part of our sinful fallen condition. What is not okay is what we do with those doubts when we allow them to be hidden inside and take our heart down a path that ultimately ends in our own destruction. So Jesus claims divinity. We respond skeptically. Now what does Jesus do in response to that? How does he confront the doubt and skepticism of these scribes, this evil that they've hidden away in their hearts? The answer in verses 5 through 8 is that Jesus demonstrates conclusively who he is. He doesn't leave us to guess. He doesn't leave us to blind faith. He's going to do something to hammer home, plain for all to see, I am who I say I am. Verse 5, as he continues speaking to these, to these scribes, for which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? Think about that. This is one of my favorite exchanges in all of scripture from Jesus. Because he, he understands exactly what they're thinking. He understands exactly what most of us are thinking. And that's this. It's pretty easy to say your sins are forgiven because you can't prove it either way. If I stand here this morning And I say, Michelle, all of your sins are forgiven. That's nice, but how how do you know if they are or not? Like, Forgiveness of sins is not an empirical, tangible thing. It can't be demonstrably proven. And so Jesus admits here, it's easy to say that, right? What's a lot harder is to say to the man, rise and walk. That's the point Jesus is making here. Because if you say rise and walk, and he doesn't get up and walk, well, then it's pretty plain that you're a fraud, right? It's easy to demonstrate whether you can do that or not. And so that's, that's what Jesus is saying here in verse 5. He's like, look, I know what you're thinking. What's easier, to say what I just said to this guy or to tell him to get up off his mat and go home? What's much easier to say what I just said? And then we get to verse 6. If you get nothing else this morning, Verse 6 is the main point of this passage. This is the point that Matthew is driving hard to. Verse 6, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he then says to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Jesus does something incredible, but he tells us exactly why he is doing it. So that we may know. 
so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, get up and walk. Jesus says, I've claimed the ability to do something that you can't prove one way or the other. And you're skeptical of that. So that you can know I can do that, so you know I can do the thing that's easy to say, I'm going to do the thing that's hard to say. Right? We've talked about that throughout the book uh, so far, is that, that ancient Near Eastern tradition of going from the lesser to the greater. It was a logical argument that they would use in that day and time. If you can do the hard thing, then you can, of course, do the easier thing. I think I said it backwards the first way around, but you know what I'm saying, right? Jesus says, this is harder than that. I'm going to do this so you know I can do that. I'm going to make the guy get up and walk so that you may know I have authority to forgive his sins too. I'm going to do the impossible thing that can be empirically demonstrated so you know I can do the impossible thing that I can't empirically demonstrate. Anybody can say, your sins are forgiven. Not anybody can say, rise and walk to a paralytic. And the man gets up, he walks through the crowd, and he goes home. Jesus sees our skepticism, and he invites us to evaluate the truth of who he is and what he says based on an impossible yet concrete event that would be able to be plainly refuted as false, right? He invites the Pharisees to say, you don't think I can forgive sins? I'm not asking you to take my word for it. I'm saying you evaluate my ability to forgive sins based on my ability to do this impossible thing right now, and he does it. Let that be the grounds of your trust in my ability to forgive sins. And he continues to do the same thing today, right? Jesus does not call us to blind faith. He doesn't say, just take my word for it. But he continues to say, I'm going to do something impossible in real space time and say, you trust my ability to do these spiritual things for you because I was able to do this. What does that look like? Matthew 17, 22 and 23. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And he goes on to repeat that prediction twice more in the coming chapters of Matthew. I am going to be crucified, and I am going to get up out of the grave. That, my friends, is our rise and walk. That is the tangible thing that Jesus said, you want to trust that I can forgive your sins? You want to trust that I can save you? You trust based on what I demonstrated in rising from the dead. That is a real and actual event. It either happened in history or it didn't. And what Jesus says is, if it didn't happen, you don't have to listen to a word that I said. If it did happen, then I am God and Lord. And everything has truth. Everything rests on that. Paul makes this argument in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul says to the church at Corinth, you're following Jesus because he promises to forgive your sins. If he's still dead, you're still in your sins. You have no hope in the life to come. 
You're going to stand before God. You're going to answer for everything that you've done in your life yourself. When we proclaim Jesus' message, we invite people to evaluate whether it's true or false, not based on whether they like it, not based on how it makes them feel, not based on whether they've had a religious experience, but based on whether Jesus was actually bodily, historically raised from the dead. That's what everything rests on. So that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He walked out of the grave. Now maybe you're thinking this morning, well, that was 2,000 years ago. Like if I could have seen that, that would be one thing. But how can I actually know what happened 2,000 years ago? I'm just supposed to take the Bible's word for it? Why should I believe the Bible? We're not going to go into great detail this morning. But let me tell you this. There is actual, real, historical evidence that suggests that what the Bible claims about Jesus' resurrection is true. And I will go as far as to say, and I've heard people say, like, wow, that's a bold claim, but it's true. I have never encountered an alternate explanation for the events surrounding the resurrection that actually deals plausibly with the accepted historical facts. Never heard it. Maybe you're thinking... What historical facts are those? The reality of Jesus' actual death, right? Some would say, well, he didn't actually die. He just kind of fainted on the cross. And so then he came out of the tomb and everybody thought he was resurrected. Like, you think Roman soldiers don't know what death looks like? You think professional executioners who stuck a spear in his side to make sure he was dead, like, they don't know what that looks like? You read through everything that he went through and with no medical attention, he just got put in a tomb and three days later woke up and was fine? Good luck with that. It's just, it's nonsense. It doesn't work. What other facts? The empty tomb. People almost universally, even people who reject the reality of the resurrection, agree that the tomb was empty. His body wasn't there. Why? Because in the early days of Christianity, the Jewish leaders wanted to snuff it out. The Romans wanted to snuff it out. It started to be a problem. What better way to snuff out a religion based on a dead guy being alive than to produce the dead guy? Just wheel the body out, and it becomes pretty conclusive. And they never try. They concoct stories about why the body's not there. But if he's dead, then just open up the tomb and let everybody see. They can't because it was empty. So how do you explain that? Usually people go with, well, the disciples stole the body, right? That was the original story. Then explain to me why the disciples, without exception, willingly died well, one did not die, but it wasn't for lack of trying. Didn't, why did they all die for their conviction that Jesus had been raised from the dead and that they had seen him alive? People don't die brutally for things that they know not to be true. And even if you said, well, maybe one of them was crazy and did 11? Come on. So when I say I have never encountered a good alternate explanation for the resurrection that takes into account the generally accepted historical facts. I mean it. I've never heard someone make a compelling case. Now, maybe that sounds like crazy talk to you, and you're like, but you're talking about a guy raising from the dead. How am I supposed to believe that? Look, nothing would thrill me more than to buy you a cup of coffee this week, hear your alternate explanation, and let's talk about it. Again, let's bring the doubts and the skepticism into the open and deal with it. Jesus isn't afraid of it. He invites you to come forth and evaluate who he is based on what he did. Jesus is not out to hoodwink you. 
right? Faith in Christianity is not about trying to pull the wool over your eyes so that you'll give more money or do religious things. Like, that's not how this works. Jesus does not call us to blind, irrational faith that we sometimes think faith means. Jesus makes bold claims, but he also does incredible, impossible, tangible things so that you may know the bold claims are true. And how do the crowds respond? Verse 7, the man gets up, rose, and went home. Verse 8, when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. What does evidence look like in our lives that we've started to get this truth, right? If the big truth is that Jesus demonstrates the amazing reality of who he is by these amazing things that he has done, what does it look like when we start to actually get that and believe it? Well, it looks first like fear. Because when we realize the incredible nature of who Jesus is. You can't take that lightly anymore. These people, like they were afraid. Remember now, we saw the same reaction back on the other side of the lake. They were afraid because they realized the magnitude of who they were dealing with, and they say, get out of town. These people on this side of the lake are afraid just the same, and they glorify God. Their fear drives them to God rather than away from him. But fear is inescapable. A sense of awe and wonder has to follow this. It made me think of the movie The Prestige, one of my favorite all-time films about these two dueling magicians, and they're competing to, to come up with even more elaborate illusions. And one of the characters in The Prestige, Robert Angier, talking about the nature of performing illusion on stage, says this. He says, if anybody really believed the things I did on stage, they wouldn't clap, they'd scream. If they really thought that kind of power was taking place here, it would terrify them. Because that's not normal. It's not something that just happens in everyday life. That's why the fear here. The crowd saw something that they could not put in a category. They could not tuck in a box. This Jesus is unlike anything they've ever encountered. And so they feared, they were afraid, but they glorified God. A biblical fear of God causes us not to run away from God, but to run to him instead. Alistair Begg. A biblical fear of God causes us not to run away from God, like the people in the country of the Gatherings did last week, but a biblical fear of God, when we come face to face with the amazing, awe-inspiring wonder of who he is, a biblical fear of God causes us to run to him, to take shelter under him. I want to tether my rope to this anchor. I want this God to be my strength, my security. This kind of fear is bedrock to the Christian faith. This kind of awe and wonder at who God is, at who Jesus is. This is not just a dime a dozen good religious teacher. This man is God. That has to be at the foundation of our faith, right? Ecclesiastes 12, 13, fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. This is the whole ball of wax. If you have a Christianity that is cavalier towards God, that does not have an element of biblical fear and awe in it, you don't have Christianity. Christian, have you ever been afraid like this? 
Not like a kid cowering in fear in the corner, but struck with the wonder of who God is. Do you understand who it is you're dealing with? The scribes didn't. The crowd did by the time the story was over. They were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. You cannot come to terms with the the magnitude, the majesty of who Jesus is and walk away casually. But our kind of fear should cause us to glorify God, to marvel at the things that he has done through his son. We can never see him the same way again. And every act of obedience, every bit of faith from this point forward is grounded on the majesty of who he is and what he's done. That's the ground on which we stand. So what do we do with this this week? How does this reality change your Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday? Some questions to think about. One, have you ever come to terms with the claims that Jesus made about himself? That he's more than just a good teacher. That he's more than just a charismatic religious leader. A nice guy but that he claimed to be God. He claimed to have the authority to universally forgive sins. Have you come to terms with that Jesus? Have you ever come to terms with the fact that you have sins that you need forgiven? Guilt is a universal human condition. But usually we try to write it off, right? Just don't think about it. And we distract ourselves with entertainment, we distract ourselves with relationships, we distract ourselves with vice, we may even distract ourselves with the virtue. All sorts of things to try to put a band-aid over the gaping hole in our heart. Have you come to terms with the seriousness of your sinful, convic- uh, your sinful condition? That the, the use of your legs isn't even as important as your need for forgiveness. Have you come to terms with the claims Jesus made about himself? Have you come to terms with the fact that you have sins you need forgiven? And then, what doubts and skepticism do you bring to the table with you? I hope in group this week, let's talk honestly about this in a way that maybe feels a little odd to be so candid. But what doubts and skepticism do you bring to the table with you? In what ways are you thinking evil in your heart that you need to bring out into the open and let Jesus speak to? through his word, through his people. Think about that. Spend some time this week thinking about that one before Wednesday or Thursday night group. And let's come and talk honestly and candidly about what it is that we feel threatens our faith sometimes. And then finally, the paralyzed man in our story and the crowd around could have confidence that Jesus could forgive his sins because he healed his broken body. Why do you have confidence in Jesus? Why do you have confidence in Jesus? If you're talking to somebody about faith and you talk about the forgiveness that you have found in Jesus and they say, well, how do you know it's true? How do you know you're forgiven? What would you say? What's the basis of your confidence? Is it just because of some personal experience? And personal experience is legit, like, We all could tell stories of things that God has done in our lives that retell his grace and his glory. And those are good things. Those are good stories to share. But at the end of the day, they're insufficient as a grounds for confidence because everybody's got a story to tell. 
Why do you have confidence this morning that your sins are forgiven? Is your trust firmly rooted in what he has already actually done? Something that happened in history that no personal experience can add to or take away from. Where is your confidence this morning? If you think about your faith, as you think about all the things that you've experienced, as you think about the sins that God has forgiven you of, what is your so that you may know? For this crowd, it's because a guy who was laying on a mat walked out the front door. For us, it's because a guy who was laying dead in a grave walked out the front door. That is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It is the grounds of our confidence. It is the grounds of our boasting. Have you made it yours? Is it lying at the bedrock of your faith? And as we meet in group this week, as we encourage each other throughout the week, let's encourage each other, drive each other to that point. Because that is a rock that if you build on, you will never be disappointed. You will have confidence that outlasts circumstance and storm and skepticism and doubt. Because Christ is sufficient and he's enough. Let's pray.